Welcome to On the Edge with Liza Pullman. On the Edge explores the frontier of human potential. What really is possible? Experts in medicine, business, science, and belief systems divulge methods and pathways to productivity, profitability, well-being, freedom, and happiness. Now, here's your host, Liza Pullman. Welcome. Welcome to On the Edge. Today on my show, I welcome Dr. Nitin Ron. Dr. Ron is a neonatologist and high-altitude mountaineer. He is an associate professor of pediatrics and assistant director of the NICU at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. He has given three TED Talks and leads a research project in the Himalayas, including the Mount Everest region, involving ultrasound of optic nerve in the body to predict mountain sickness. His research also involves studying the effect of meditation in acclimatizing the body to high altitude. He has just finished the first draft of his book, titled The Science Behind Pranayama and Meditation, which he is co-authoring with his father. He constantly encourages his students to rearrange the paradigms with which they run their lives and therefore to reinvent themselves every moment. In addition, he volunteers as an art guide at the Rubin Museum of Himalayan Art in New York City as a reminder that medicine is as much an art as a science. What we are exploring today is the power of love and meditation to saving premature babies' lives. Nitin, it seems so obvious And yet in medical hospitals today, is it fair to say that love being a medical tool to save lives is something of a revolution? Hi, nice to be here and thank you so much for this opportunity. It's an absolute pleasure and I love to talk. So I am excited at the opportunity to talk even more. So, (laughs) yeah. And, uh, you know, answering your question What is very incredible is that the awareness now is growing very, very significantly of the role of meditation and love and compassion, even in mainstream allopathic medicine, if I may Mm -hmm. put it that way. So there's more and more of resident wellness programs being created, physician wellness being created. And uh, I'm so happy that in the last, I would say, maybe about eight or nine years and much more so in the last three or four years, it's actually increasing the awareness that we all need to be grounded, that we all need to have love and compassion. So I'm happy to say that it's not that much of a revolution as it is just a resuscitation of what probably just existed maybe decades ago and definitely a couple centuries ago in the world of medicine and healthcare. Well, I have to say it warms my heart (laughs) to know that this is growing in usage and in training because it seems transformational to me that this is being used in the way it is. But I want to start with an anecdote 
and it seems like we're stepping out of the conversation, but I think it probably connects very closely to what we're going to talk about today. And that is that you have a powerful story about an interaction with a wild mountain dog. And I am hoping that you will share that with us today. Absolutely. Let me begin by saying that I love mountains and more specifically also I love the Himalayas. The greatest reason that I love the Himalayas is number one, there's been centuries and centuries of meditation being carried out in those mountains and you actually feel that energy. There is a shift of consciousness even when you are in the presence of these massive mountains. But to me, being a doctor and a scientist, I want everything proven with all the facts in modern experimentation in medicine, I really feel that it is transformational being there because the Himalaya are so massive. Even the base of Mount Everest at 17,500 feet is higher than the summit of the highest mountain of the Alps, which is Mont Blanc at 16,200. It's like the mountains are looking at us and laughing and telling us, hey, if you think you're important, we've been standing here 350 million years and we don't even know you exist. So your ego is utterly crushed, trampled. And I feel that when our conditioning is gone, the ego is gone. That's when the love and creativity arises. So I have been to the Himalayas over 15 times and I have been on Mount Everest four times. And the incident you're referring to was very exciting. It was actually on one of my journeys in the mountain. This was one of my journeys of self-discovery just about five years ago. And uh, I went to live under a tree. So I was at 16,000 feet altitude, exactly at the tree line, living between the roots of the tree in the Himalayas. No tent, no sleeping bag, just depending on nature for my survival. And there was this big mountain dog who came down on my first evening of meditation, started looking at me and growling. The mountain dogs are closer to the lupus family, the wolf family, than the canis family, than the dog family. And they can be very aggressive. I don't know how I mustered up the courage to do this, but through my meditation, as I was meditating, the growling dog was standing right next to me and my hand went up on his shoulder and I just kept my hand there and I could feel him initially tense up and then utterly relax. Mm -hmm. And then he sat down and started wagging his tail. He had probably not seen a human being all his life or definitely several years. I would say it was a remote area of the Himalaya. And he stayed with me for the next 10 days mm -hmm. while I was in meditation out in the mountains. He also protected me from the Himalayan bears. These bears are the second largest bear in the world. So they are bigger than the grizzly. And if they are unhappy with you, they can tear you apart in like 10 seconds flat. And he was there with me. The bears probably would have done nothing. They were very kind to share their place with me. But having said that, it was incredible to have him there to protect me. And also he got me dead rats and mice in the first day to share his lunch with me. And I politely declined. And he was content with that too. So we were together and then when the meditation was done, after 10 days, as I was headed downward, he came halfway down the mountain with me, but he is a mountain dog, so he can't survive at low altitude. And then we just looked at each other with a silent look of gratitude 
and he went back up into the mountains and I started my trek back down into the villages. So it was an incredible incident because it brought home the fact that love and compassion is not just restricted to human beings with our big brains, our prefrontal cortex. It also overflows into the animal kingdom. Mm. So this is a great revelation for me of the power of love. You know, since you shared that story, and, and you know this because, uh, I don't know, we shared that story months ago. Um, I had an interaction with a wild dog and another woman in Spain and another woman I know had an interaction in Mongolia with a wild dog. And they're all very similar. And there's something, there's something that dogs, in particular in this case, wild dogs, Teach us about love. You're absolutely right. You know, and the most incredible thing, what I learned is it's much more so with dogs because they are very close in their thinking and feeling with humans about many things. But it also extends on to deer, to crows, mm -hmm. to snakes. Because I was in meditation at this incredible place in South India called Ramanashram. Ramana Maharshi was one of probably one of the most enlightened people who ever lived. He died in 1950. So his place is one of the most tranquil in South India. And when he used to meditate, there used to be snakes who used to come in and just relax next to him. There was a huge cow. Her name was Lakshmi. She used to come and just go into quiet mm -hmm. meditation. There was a crow and there was, of course, a dog. Their graves are right next to Ramana Maharshi's grave up there at the ashram. And it's so encouraging to see that when there is love and compassion, it just goes on. You know, it breaks all barriers, transcends the species and just becomes universal. But absolutely with dogs, it's so much more perceptible because we are so familiar with them and they are so close to us. Yes. Yeah, it does. It seems like one of the main teachings, if not the teaching that we get from dogs, but I agree it transcends to other animals and reptiles and, you know, birds and probably insects. And given that, I... I'm wondering how you define love, because love is defined differently by different people in different cultures. And since love is really your work now, I'm curious how you define love. That's a good question. I think love needs to be first and foremost non-selfish. It's like a mother's love for her baby. You know, it transcends all boundaries, all barriers. And she has nothing in it for her to feed this helpless little newborn, to care for this helpless little baby. And that's how love should be. Yes, there is physical love. There is love where you are in love with somebody. And that is wonderful, too. However, the most powerful kind of love is the one which transcends all boundaries. And love and compassion are two words which also go hand in hand. And, you know, the interesting thing is that we say that, oh, yes, we have to love other people. But love and compassion really need to begin with self-love and self-compassion. And the moment we are compassionate to ourselves, we are loving to ourselves. This just overflows and transcends to the world outside. So I feel that it is an utter lack of conditioning, utter lack of selfishness and compassion for other people and living beings, sentient organisms around us. And where did this come from inside of you? 
The greatest inspiration for me is my dad. He is an atomic scientist and he and my mom are my role models for everything. He is one of the main scientists to have moved India away from war and towards peace in the field of nuclear science. He says his dream has always been the equivalent of Einstein's dream to not use the atom for making bombs, but to make electricity in villages to help poor people. So my dad has also been deep in yoga and meditation over four decades, and he actually introduced this to the community in India, the scientific community, and proved that productivity went up 60% and conflict came down 85% just through meditation and through love. And he's the most loving, the kindest, sweetest being ever, utterly guileless and the closest to a saint that I have ever known in almost any human beings that I am familiar with. My mom is a mathematician. She's very loving and caring, but she is also a mom. Even now she calls up from India just to make sure that I've had my dinner on time. <laughs> and they are, they are both love and compassion incarnate. So my main role model has been my father ever since I was a kid. I was surrounded by all these books on meditation, love, compassion. Not that I read any of it. I was a rebellious teenager and I was a very naughty kid. But at least even the presence of these books, books by Paramahansa Yogananda, books by Sri Sri Dayamata, Ramana Maharshi, Swami Shivananda and all the great people who walked this earth so many decades ago, I think it made a difference to me in my upbringing, even though I was not participating in it as a kid. But mm. at least the presence, you know, made a difference, I feel. So that's probably where it started. Mm. Well, you know, they say apples don't fall far from trees, so I can see that in you. So let's talk about how you bring love into your work in the hospital. I think the most cool thing about medicine is being there for other people, being able to make a difference in the life of another person. There is nothing which comes close to saving a little baby's life. You know, typically the scenario I'm called into the operating room or the delivery room is where there's a tiny premature baby. Some of them are not bigger than the size of your iPhone 6 plus and they are not breathing, they have no heart rate. So you go in there, this is where also the meditation comes in, is that you take a deep breath, release any attachment to the outcome, and go there and help the baby, resuscitate the baby by getting a breathing tube and connecting the baby to oxygen. And then the miracle of life happens. Babies are very cool, they're far stronger than adults. They look like tiny, delicate little things, but they are not. They are the strongest little critters on planet Earth because, you know, you go in there and give them a little bit of help, they help themselves. So from close to a dead baby or an equivalent to that, you do the right resuscitation and you have a baby who is pink, crying, the heart rate starts coming up when the breathing tube goes in. The little one looks around, she yanks out the breathing tube, lets out a loud cry, and lo and behold, life comes back into this earth. Mm -hmm. There is no arrogance in this kind of love. What I love is just that look in the mother's eyes. You know, you, she gives you the baby, baby has no heart rate. You give the baby back to her. Baby is normal, pink and crying. She'll snatch that baby from you and hold that little baby to her breast. However, that one second before that, she will look at you and that look is full of compassion, love and surrender. And that one look 
is worth probably going to a thousand temples, synagogues, churches, whatever you might call it, because this is the ultimate worship of love, I feel. And you don't even need to be given anything to make such a difference, bring such joy in the mother's eyes and bring back life. So I'm just grateful for the opportunity that through love, through compassion and through my skill, I can at least get life into this baby. And uh, you see that everywhere in the intensive care unit, tiny babies in incubators, the more the parents are loving, the more they are next to the baby, the more love they get the better they do, which is fascinating to me. So day in and day out, every moment, I see the effect of love and compassion in my practice, in the hospital and in the clinic. So, you know, I am a mother, and as a result, I have had children and other people I know who have children. Everyone knows that the moment you have a child, you are changed forever, and that... There's no way to explain the connection that you have to that child that comes out of you in that moment. But as you said, you know, there are children that don't get to be given right back to their mothers. You know, they do go into the NIC unit and that does require more love. And you actually have a program that you run around that. But before we get into that, I want to take a short break. So I've been speaking with neonatologist, mountaineer, and art aficionado, Dr. Nitin Ron, about what love has to do with life and death. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to On the Edge with Liza Pullman on TalkZone.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. In the last segment, Dr. Nittenron spoke about how love is truly the difference between life and death in the neonatal unit. Let's go back to the neonatal unit and learn more. Welcome back, Nitten. Thank you so much. Glad to be back. So we left off talking about love in the neonatal unit, and there's more than that. And I wanted you to talk more because there's so many parents out there today who have premature babies. And even if they don't have a premature baby, I think this information is beneficial for them. You're absolutely right. Even though it is a neonatal intensive care unit, the population is not just the premature babies, so you are totally correct about that. It's also full-term babies with unexpected problems like a bit of breathing difficulty, changes in heart rate, which might require observation for a while. So the premature babies are just one population. There are several big babies as well in the neonatal ICU, which is very funny sometimes to see a really big baby in an incubator next to a tiny one. The <laughs> contrast is like a, a, an elephant and a mouse, and it is right. so you know? It's so, like a five-year-old and a newborn. Exactly, exactly. And so, and the point you made is very important because I think love can be transmitted through physical contact and through closeness as well for these babies. One of the most important things is breastfeeding, and we promote this 
very, very vigorously in the newborn intensive care unit. It can be a harrowing thing for the mother because you expect this baby to be fine. Everything looks like it's going fine. And then the world falls apart. The mom goes into preterm labor. She, husband calls 911 or she calls 911, rush to the hospital. This baby is born in an incubator away from her and then entirely surrounded by monitors. So what happens is it's very important to promote contact between the mother and the baby. And, and this isn't just breast pumping. Breastfeeding as mm-hmm. well as what is called as kangaroo care, mm-hmm. which means that we have skin-to-skin contact between the mother and the baby. So that's one of the ways in which we can promote love through physical contact. Is it pumping? Are the mothers uh, pumping milk or are they actually breastfeeding the babies or are they doing their pumping and then holding the baby to their breast? How does that actually work? It's actually both. They do express out the breast milk because the babies, when they're premature, do not have the suck and swallow reflex. And uh, so definitely breast milk is absolutely the best milk for promoting bonding. And so we have them do that. However, when you kangaroo, it's non-nutritive sucking that the babies can do as well. So they can just hold the baby to the breast and the baby gets the mom's smell and the mom's feel. And this actually promotes bonding very significantly. What, however, happens is after the first month or so, they might have other kids at home and mommy and daddy have to go back home or go back to work. And so there are large periods of time when the parents might not be present in the newborn intensive care unit only because life has to go on and there might be other siblings to attend to. And a typical small premature baby might be admitted as much as six to nine weeks or even more than that sometimes in the neonatal ICU. This actually inspired us to join a program called the Baby Cuddler Program. And we have volunteer cuddlers who come in and they get training on how to handle babies. The cuddlers are vetted very, very carefully before that just to make sure that everything is safe and okay. And they shadow an existing cuddler to learn to hold these babies, to play with these babies. And then they sit and cuddle the babies. And it has made such a big difference. There is a lot of research out there from my alma mater at Brown University in Rhode Island from a center in Canada and another large neonatal center in Detroit. And these babies have been followed up to 10 years of age. And the interesting thing is in the neonatal ICU, the babies which are cuddled have far lesser complications, a much shorter hospital stay. They progress much quicker, much better weight gain, go home much quicker and they have been followed up to 10 years and they are far better balanced as children than the non-cuddled ones. And these are strict scientific studies which have happened on these babies. So love and cuddling are really very good for internal development, increasing the immunity, making you stronger and emotionally and physically better balanced. So this is very apparent in the neonatal intensive care unit. Well, in in this culture and in in many um, cultures around the world now where parents work and there's child care providers and it's very, very busy, there's something affirming in knowing that 
almost this communal raising of a child or tribal raising of a child, which in essence, when you have other people cuddling and caring for your child, is so effective in making a difference in a child's life and that there's research that shows that it's significant. Yes, you're absolutely right about that. And it's very solid science, including extremely well-conducted research studies involving over 10,000 babies who have been followed up now almost into adulthood and a very rigorous follow-up up to 10 years of age, which has definitely proven whatever you just mentioned now. You're absolutely right about it. So are these cuddling programs, are they mainstream or are they just taking place in certain hospitals? Fortunately, they are becoming much, much more mainstream now. And uh, the hospital that I am at is affiliated with Cornell. And we have a lot of hospitals all over the country who actually promote this program and train the cuddlers to come in and cuddle the babies. So fortunately, it's getting more and more ubiquitous now than it had been, I would say, maybe about a decade ago. Because people are actually seeing the effect of cuddling, the effect of love on the babies, and it's starting to make a difference in people's perception that this is really needed. And are the cuddlers people who come through hospital volunteer programs? Are there certain types of people that are drawn to this type of important work? Yes, absolutely. In fact, it is a part of the volunteer department. At most hospitals, they have different subsections and the baby cuddling is one of them. The volunteers do such a great job in the other sections as well, you know, helping the patients, being there for them, being a person that they can talk to, as well as being involved in baby cuddling. So absolutely, it is a part of the volunteer department of many hospitals around and uh, and it makes a real difference, you know, the presence of these cuddlers. I have seen them come in, caress these babies, be with these babies and cuddle them. And the nice thing, the very interesting thing is people from different walks of life do the cuddling. So I have seen not just medical personnel. In fact, we tend to go away from medical personnel towards uh, other people. And we have artists, we have performers. We have singers, we have actors all coming in and doing it. And what is really incredible is that it is as nourishing to the cuddler as it is to the babies. So I have them come and tell me, oh, my God, I was in a, there was a writer who came and told me, my goodness, I was in such a mental funk, a mental block. I didn't know what to do, wasn't getting any inspiration. I came I, with little Patrick. I held little Patrick in my hand. I cuddled him. And lo and behold, I had my aha moments one after the other and all the mind blocks got transcended. So I feel that it is as inspiring to the cuddlers as it is to the cuddled babies. They're not collecting research on that yet, are they? I hope they will start in a much better way. There is much more research on breastfeeding, much more research on kangaroo care that I mentioned earlier, and a little bit less research on cuddling. But luckily, the awareness is growing that the research needs to be done, and there are more and more programs actually willing to do this research.
And, you know, going back to our prior conversation about animals, you know, obviously there's a lot of work that's done around the impact of people working with animals and getting benefit from animals. It would be interesting to see what the impact is with this. It's probably very similar. Absolutely. You are so correct about it. In fact, animal therapy, there is dog therapy, there is horse therapy is coming in in such a big way to help children. Children with cerebral palsy, children who are challenged otherwise with their intellect. It's so incredible to see them interact with animals. Animals for the vast majority, the most part, are guideless and just unconditional in their love. And you are absolutely right in that nowadays more and more animals are being used. As is actually dance and other forms of art in uh, making children better and helping them transcend their disabilities. But, you know, it really is interesting that we started this conversation about the power of love on the infant and really the power, this unconditional love that the infant now is giving to these other people is really remarkable. So that that says a lot. Yes, you're absolutely right. So you, you're also, um, uh, an educator to medical students. Yes, we are affiliated with the Cornell Medical School and a couple of others. And it's exciting to make a difference in the perception and the thinking of the students. It's arrogant to say you can make a difference. The real thing you can do is just show that the doors exist and open the doors and it is the choice of the students to walk through them. But what is so incredible is to show them the perspectives that exist through love and compassion. Rabindranath Tagore, who won the Nobel Prize in literature in uh, India in the 1900s, the early 1900s, he said that the mind that is sharp but not broad sticks at every point but does not move. So there is no point in being just of a high intellect and sharp-minded without having the width of vision. And this can be given only by opening many doors and showing them there is more than one way to do things. And what I have learned is being exposed to nature, being in the midst of nature, being exposed to art really inspires students and helps them to be a better doctor. We need to realize that medicine also is as much an art as it is a science. It's not just lab reports. It's not just looking at it and analyzing. It's also being next to the patient, holding their hands, looking into their eyes and understanding what they are about. And this, I feel, is as important to this art of medicine as is the science of medicine. And I have been very lucky to be able to expose the students to a lot of this, to nature and to art. Well, and they they call it bedside manner, but that is really not capturing what it means to bring love into your work. And the way that you do this with your students is unique. Would you share that? Yes, sure. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. A couple of things which I am excited about to teach them is number one, the power of nature. 
a lot of the teaching occurs in a beautiful park. The hospital is situated in Park Slope, Brooklyn, right next to Prospect Park. And there are many times when the weather is good that we go under a tree, we form a circle, and then we have the teaching over there. I actually empower a couple of the students to do the teaching to the other students. So everybody reads up on it before. And uh, I'm more a moderator than a teacher in these circumstances. Also, what is interesting is that I feel the power of music is important. I play Indian classical music on the flute. And sometimes we have about five minutes of a music session. I encourage the students to get their musical instruments and we play it and then we start the teaching. And what is even more interesting is that there are some very happy people walking about in Prospect Park in Brooklyn on a nice summer afternoon. And there was time a couple of years ago when we were having the music session and one by one, people came and started putting money in front of us. And we ended up at the end of this teaching session with $100, which we gave to the, the homeless shelter by that evening. So I feel music transcends conditioning, as does nature. It is so incredible to be in the midst of the trees and the green grass and just sit on that grass and learn. It's so much more fun. And also, I believe that the conditioning melts away and the students are much more receptive to learning. The other thing which I love to do is to expose them to art. I volunteer as an art guide at the Rubin Museum of Art in Chelsea in Manhattan and I trained as an official art docent for that museum. This is a museum of the city of New York and I feel good to be able to give back to the city through my activity, volunteer activity at this museum. But what is interesting is I make it a part of the pediatric rotation for them to come to the museum and we look at this ancient art in the museum and we explore the science behind the art and the other way around. They actually have these murals there from the secret temple of the Dalai Lamas. These are called the Lukhang murals at the museum. They're very old murals and they actually depict a lot of science, including one of them has even the 40 weeks of pregnancy, the fetal development, exactly as we know it now, including the time that a single chambered heart becomes a four chambered heart. This was a time when there were no microscopes, so you could not even argue that they did fetal dissection. So I think it's very humbling to know that people, even through their meditation, probably were so less conditioned that their mind was very open to being creative. And I feel that all of us have the capability to do this. Maybe sometimes we need to unlearn before we start learning. And this is one of the lessons I try to give to the students as well. Well, and the challenge of the pathway to be a doctor is that it is a very rigorous pathway that requires a tremendous amount of education, and that requires that people give up their free time and how they would spend their time, and things like art and music and nature get sidelined. They get sidelined for the average person. And you and I both value those aspects of life arguably above all else. And I'm curious what 
difference you see in the students from when they first come to you before you've exposed them to time in the park and music and time at the museum where they can see art? What happens during that period of time to these students? That's a very interesting question, and there are two parts to it. The first is finding the time to do these things, and secondly, how it makes a difference to the students. I really feel that time is in the head. All we need to do is just flip a couple of paradigms which we allow to run our life, and lo and behold, time manifests for everything that we have love for, everything that we have passion for. In the past, it used to be work-life balance, as being work bad, life good, and how do we balance the bad with the good in our life. And now the term is much more work-life integration. It's really difficult to get away from one when you are with the other. And the fun part comes when you are able to inculcate certain features both in your work and both in your life. And uh, so if we are able to integrate work and life together as a continuum and not see this duality, this barrier, I think it becomes so much easier to transcend time. Neonatology is among the busiest professions on planet Earth. And uh, yet, you know, one is able to find the time to go to the museum to volunteer over there. I sometimes volunteer with the fire services and the ambulance services to teach them newborn resuscitation to bring up the level of care in the community, as well as to do all the things that I do. There is no arrogance here. This is not to tell you, oh, I'm cool. I'm able to do these things. It's just to tell you that all it requires is love and passion and no ulterior motive except making a difference. And automatically, the time always manifests. And it does make a difference to the students. I am not proud enough to think that, oh, I make a difference to the students. Every person, every medical student and every human being is inherently loving, inherently kind and compassionate. And sometimes all it requires is just to transcend our conditioning, dissolve the conditioning and realize who we are, beautiful, loving beings in the first place. And I feel that the exposure to art, the exposure to music and the exposure to nature does that very, very effectively. So it's already in us. There's nothing special one is doing to like create this difference. It always existed. But probably what makes a difference is that the conditioning goes away and we realize that we are beautiful people to begin with. That's when Ramana Maharshi, the person that I began by quoting, he was once asked, you know, yes, you are meditating. Isn't it a selfish thing? How do you really intend to make a difference to other people? And his meditation was mainly in silence. You could just come into his presence and feel your consciousness shifting just by being there. And his answer when he was asked, how do you intend to make a difference to other people? His answer was, what other people? You know, because the fun thing is when you are loving, when you are passionate and have compassion, everything is one. There is no duality. And the more difference you make to yourself, the more difference you start seeing in the people around us. Mm. So I feel that, you know, this is this is very significant with the students. I'm lucky to be able to be in a teaching role where I can uh, I can play with the teaching and expose the students to this. And it's been very positive so far. Mm. Beautiful. On that note, we need to take a short break. We've been speaking with Dr. Nitin Ron. 
neonatologist, mountaineer, artificiando about the power of love in the neonatal unit. We'll be right back. Welcome back to On the Edge. Here's Liza Pullman. Welcome back. In the last segment, Dr. Ron spoke about how love is truly the difference between life and death and how music, nature, and art are powerful tools in his teaching of students who go on to work in the neonatal unit. Welcome back, Dr. Ron. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be back. So I want to go into something a little deeper, which I'm sure seems hard to imagine for people. But there's actually some science behind the power of nature and music and meditation and why that makes a difference in people's brains. You are absolutely right. What is very interesting is that there is so much research now happening, mainly with a lot of large universities, University of uh, California, Berkeley, as well as University of Wisconsin at Madison and at Harvard. And uh, this is looking at the neuroscience of love, compassion, as well as the neuroscience of meditation. I'm also lucky to be involved in a research project in the Himalayas, looking at the effect of pranayam, which is yoga breathing, and meditation at high altitude to see if it makes a difference in human health. And what is interesting is the results are very positive so far. And the people who meditate up in the mountains, if you are doing that, or even the breathing practices, which is known as the pranayam, the yoga breathing, it is very protective against illnesses on the mountain, mainly mountain sickness, which occurs because of lack of acclimatization of the body to the low oxygen and can potentially be fatal. So there is very, very solid science behind love, compassion and behind the power of meditation. One interesting thing that meditation does is not it not only allows us to have thoughts, it allows us to have more perception of the feelings behind the thoughts. And this is interesting. This is known as our ethical radar. And it actually makes this much more powerful. It's almost like having a sixth sense and a heightened perception of the other person and what is happening around. And I think one can be a much better communicator because of this. This also enables us to have what is called the human moment as described by Daniel Goleman in his book, Emotional Intelligence. The human moment is one where there is this incredible connection between two people as two people are communicating. And this actually causes physiological and psychological entrainment of thought, which means the person's heartbeat, the person's breathing starts mimicking exactly yours. And the connection is really very, very deep. And what it requires is number one, total attention to the other person. So maybe it is useful to keep the phones aside many times when you are communicating, not look at your WhatsApp messages and text messages as you're talking and just focus on what is happening. Number two is nonverbal communication, which is so important. But number three is also positive energy. There is positivity. There is 
love in your communication, the human moment comes that much more quicker. So that's one thing which meditation does. The second thing that it does, I feel, is prevents a phenomenon known as the amygdala hijack. The amygdala is a part of the brain which is involved in the fight or flight reaction. And when human beings are subjected to stress, the amygdala starts taking over, which is fine. It's a part of the brain and you would ask, fine, let the amygdala take over. So what? The problem is that the prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking part of the brain, sees things in details, in a deep amount of depth, whereas the amygdala is only able to see things in black or white. So the decisions that are made when you are in a state of amygdala hijack, the hijack is being taken over the whole brain, probably will not be the right decisions. This is helpful to know even when you're doing an interview, when you're taking an exam with multiple choice questions, if your brain is hijacked by the amygdala, you will probably not select the right option. So this is where meditation is very helpful in helping us becoming more discerning. Even chronic stress is thought to be a low-grade amygdala hijack and the meditation also prevents that. What also is encouraged by meditation is what is called the gamma spike. The gamma waves are the waves of heightened perception in the brain. You have all the brain waves, the alpha, beta, theta, delta waves, and then you have the gamma waves. The gamma waves are less common. And the interesting thing about gamma waves is they cannot be forced. What is classically our aha moment is when the gamma waves surge up. And it is so interesting. Sometimes you are faced with a problem and you try to barge through that problem, right? And then you're stuck. You get the writer's block. You get the creative block. You are in a brain freeze and you get so totally stuck. You give up. You go to bed, very frustrated. Get up the next morning, get into the shower. Your whole thing is relaxed. You are let go. You're so relaxed in the shower and bang, the solution to your problem comes right there as your aha moment. And that's what the gamma spike is. What is very interesting is that meditation actually promotes gamma waves. And apart from meditation, what also promotes it is love and compassion, more so compassion. Because if you meditate on compassion, if you are kind and helpful to others, and this is very scientific evidence done from functional MRI scans on monks, including Matthew Ricard, who was the principal secretary to the Dalai Lama for a while and he is known to be the happiest man alive. And this is solid research done on his brain waveforms with functional MRI scans. And you have love, you have compassion, you meditate, you have much more of promotion of the gamma wave activity and therefore much more creativity and much more original thinking. One of the things that promotes gamma wave is being able to let go. And this letting go is promoted strongly through meditation. So I feel meditation has incredibly multiple benefits in our everyday life. It's not just the classic peace of mind and happiness which is promoted, but also in our everyday work, in our everyday life. If you meditate, maybe as much as even like 10 minutes every morning, that's it. It starts making a difference between in as less as a couple of weeks and what is even cooler about meditation is that the greatest bang for your buck 
occurs in the first few days of meditation. So it's not that you have to meditate for 20 years, 10 years, 15 years to do it. The moment you start, the maximum effect starts occurring within days of starting to meditate. And this doesn't have to be anything religious, anything spiritual necessarily. All it requires is just observing your thoughts without being involved in them, without judging yourself. And if you are able to do that, the mind needs to be like a movie screen. There's floods portrayed on the screen. There's fire on the screen. The screen doesn't get burnt. The screen doesn't get wet. Similarly, if we have non-judgmental, dispassionate observation of our thinking, just for 10 minutes in the morning every day, you will notice that in two weeks, it starts making a difference in our productivity, efficacy, in reaching the zone of maximum productivity, as well as in our happiness. So meditation is very, very powerful professionally and personally. And I know that you must tell your students to develop a practice in meditation. And there's there's a lot of expectation that often surrounds how someone should meditate. And I'm curious what you say about that. I think the biggest thing is to be light about it, to not be too heavy on yourself when you are attempting to do this. It's all experimentation. It's all fun. There are different kinds of meditations, so many out there. And it's great to play with one. And even the Buddha had mentioned when he had given his teachings, he said, look at my teachings, try to absorb them and see if they make a difference. If they do, then adopt them. And if not, there are so many methods out there that you're free to go out and experiment. And that is very important. It's really important not to be dogmatic about any of these things. I think there are different schools of thought which try to promote their own ways of thinking, which is fine, so be it. But what is so important is to begin with self-love and self-compassion. Just be kind to yourself and accepting of yourself. There was an interesting incident in my life which actually drove this home. Is The year before I went to live under the tree, this was still the time that I was on my journey of self-discovery, which I guess I am even now. I went to live in a cave and I was in this cave for 10 days in utter darkness. And if we think that other people are scary, they can be dangerous. Some of the most scary things are your own thoughts when they come up from the deepest recesses of your mind. And there has to be utter surrender and acceptance of your own thoughts. So I feel that all of this meditation, love, compassion needs to begin with self-love and self-compassion first. So one could try chanting, one could try visualization, one could just try introspective deep thinking, asking who am I? Where is my consciousness coming from? And one could play with all different types of meditation and then you could see what works for you. What is very interesting, Liza, is I have found that uh, depending on my state of mind, my kind of meditation varies. If it is a very busy day in the intensive care unit and I come back home and I want to meditate and if I go into silent introspection, my mind is a monkey. It's jumping up and down and my mind is telling me, are you kidding? You know, you are so busy, you are up there and how on earth 
is introspection going to be possible? And in this case, just visualization, a nice little guided meditation would be very helpful. And there are times when I am in the forest, I am in, next to the ocean, where I know I have the quietness of, quietness of mind to introspect. So one can play about with different types and one could use different types of meditation. And if you feel that one type works, there is no good or bad meditation. Then one could just do that. Again, what is very important is not to be dogmatic about it, about philosophy, about meditation. Again, Ramana Maharshi was once asked that way back in the 1930s. And he was told there are so many ways to meditate. There are so many different religions. There are so many different philosophies. So what? Why is there then so much strife? Why is there so much fighting and competition among people to push their way of thinking, whether it is religion or whether it is philosophy? And he gave a very beautiful example. He said, you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror. And to make it personal, if I get up in the morning, I look into the mirror and I'm seeing a stubble on my chin, on my cheeks. I say, oh, I'm Dr. Ron. I have to go and start rounds in the intensive care unit. So I need to shave. Then I take the razor, I put the shaving cream, I put it on myself and put the razor to myself, looking in the mirror to get all the stubble out. This is what meditation is about. Many of us make the mistake of looking at our reflection and trying to shave the mirror instead of trying to shave ourselves. The That's person, beautiful. You know, the person yeah, that the razor needs to be on, it's ourselves. So all of this, these ways of meditation, ways of philosophy and religion are more a guide to us in our own internal journey as to how we are doing and the change that we need to make, the razor that we need to apply is to ourselves, not to the mirror. Similarly, it's fun to be light, to play about with the philosophies, the meditations out there and see what to work, what works for us. Well, Nitin, I, you know, we, we've come to the end of our hour, which I can hardly believe. You've had four hours of sleep and I want to go out with you playing your flute. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. And I want to say to the listeners, we've just spent an hour with the remarkable Dr. Nitin Ron, neonatologist, mountaineer and art aficionado. For more information on Nitin, you can go to my page on TalkZone or www.imaginaconsulting.com. Would you play some of your flute for us to end the show, Nitin? Sure, absolutely. It's just a little 10-second tune, and this is an early morning tune in Indian classical music to welcome the sunrise and uh, just to thank the sun for blessing us with all of this light. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to On the Edge with Liza Pullman. For more information about Liza and to find out about upcoming programs, visit ImaginaConsulting.com. That's I-M-A-G-I-N-A Consulting.com. Thanks for listening.